Hello, and welcome to Cool Story, guys. I'm Jeff. I'm Ethan. And Bud, we did it. We did it. We finished the story. Yep. It started as a bunch of random plot ideas and possible dice rolls and turned out to be a cohesive, compelling book that, as far as I can tell, makes sense and has something to say. That word salad is now a full meal. Indeed. You feeling good about it? You ready to party? I know it's about 6 a.m. in Indiana right now as we're recording this. You ready to pop some bottles and get weird? Uh, yeah, actually, yeah. I mean, I, you know, what better time to celebrate in such a conservative state than with booze at 6? So, yes. Indeed. So, the story's done, but we might have done ourselves a bit of a disservice by choosing not to dedicate an entire podcast episode to Chapter 19, because that one was a doozy and probably merited its own whole discussion. But I really wanted my last chapter and your last chapter to go back to back and then have one big discussion at the end. So that means we're going to have an extra beefy recap of chapters 19 and 20 to start this one off. Yes. So here's 16,000 words of story summarized in about 12 minutes. <laughs> you can feel free to just walk away if you want. This one's going to take I, a minute. I just, I, you just... <laughs> no, no, I want to hear it. I forget what happens. <laughs> Chapter 19 starts with all of the main players gathered at the base of the column from their shared vision. While Alinea and Halister's group meet with the Arapa and Technics to figure out what the plan is going to be once they ascend, Finnegan is trying to keep his murderous rage in check, but he loses control when he sees Lorena traveling under the protection of those from the capital. He's regained his Magi revolver in the Avtimag bomb he lost fighting the Vist outside of the Arapa base, and when the urge becomes too strong, he shoots at Lorena, but Alinea hits the barrel of his gun with her harpoon, redirecting the bullet into an unsuspecting touched man whose barrier is no longer working involuntarily. Everyone scatters in fear, Lorena erupts in flames, and the confrontation begins. Alinea goes to check on the Touchman who's been killed, and in doing so accidentally absorbs his magical essence with the Liptus. She pulls away, but another touched woman tells her to take it, so she sucks it all in, and her skin begins to regain its crimson hue. Alinea sees everyone scattering toward the column, and so she runs that way too, and it's as if she's pulled into a vortex. She looks to the side and sees countless more people than had traveled with her or her allies, all moving towards the column. Then she slams into it and is sucked up into the sky. She rematerializes alone in a bizarre environment above the storms. The sky is blue, and reflective water appears to stretch in all directions, but the surface is solid. Olydia is shown a vision of her ideal world, one of cooperation and egalitarianism. Everyone from the base of the column who has ascended sees their own vision of a better future as well, and when the vision disappears, they are all standing together crowded on the glassy surface. The Remnant proclaims that if they want this future to be reality, they must take it, and the final battle begins with monsters attacking everything indiscriminately, and the Touched, Magi, and Technics working together for survival. The Allies know that they have no chance of defeating any one of the Emired Eight in a straight fight. All they can do is keep them distracted and minimize the casualties until Halister can recite the incantation from his ancient text and reverse the containment on their orbs, sealing them away inside. As the group fight from one superpowered evil deity to another, Finnegan saves Lorena's life from a shapeshifter mimicking Danvers, and she almost incinerates him in return, but his Arapa armor deflects the fire. Dallin Tolstring tries to take on Gormok the Stone Elemental and gets exploded into a cloud of bloody metal shards. Lots and lots of powerful allies are killed, but eventually the Immured Eight are recontained inside of their orbs, all except for Verloff and Lorena. Halister can see that Verloff is taking control of the girl again, harnessing and feeding on her anger and the death she is creating with her endless streams of fire. He sees a cloud of yellow light observing the scene, and knows that it's the Remnant, and makes the decision to try and imprison Lorena, Verloff, and the Remnant together inside of the orb where Feig has been contained, hoping it will take care of all of those problems once and for all. 
Lorena sees him performing the incantation and can't particularly blame the man for trying to get rid of her. She's fully aware that Verloff is prying away control from her once again. But before Hallister can finish the spell, he's hit by a laser beam of light that explodes through his chest and causes the red pigment from his skin to spill out onto the glassy ground. Hallister tries and fails to make a barrier to protect himself before Verloff takes control of Lorena and incinerates him. Lorena and Alinea confront the Remnant about the motives behind this horrific game of King of the Mountain, and it is revealed that the Remnant is a sentient construct created by the settlers, and that this world is the Remnant's banishment realm. The shift was their attempt to free themselves from their containment, the ascension to the platform a final experiment in a series of world rebuilds, conducted in lieu of the settlers, who have abandoned the world altogether. The rest of the allies surround Lorena, terrified to take on Verloff now that Hallister, their only real weapon against the Eight, is gone. Finnegan wonders if he could end Verloff for good with the Avtimag bomb, but he doesn't want to destroy Lorena in the process. The Blind Wanderer informs Alinea that Hallister's body was destroyed, but his spirit is still there, and he has a plan. Alinea approaches the Remnant and wants to know why she was shown the visions on Koa, and why she was brought back to life. The Remnant explains that they can't see the future, but can predict outcomes with great accuracy using data, and foresaw Alinea escaping the banishment realm she was trapped in when she died. For all of the Remnant's powers, Alinea has the one power they truly covet, and everything to this point has merely been a piece of the puzzle to get the Remnant to a place where Alinea could help them escape from their own banishment realm. The Remnant begins to search Alinea's memories for the information they need, but Hallister butts in and explains he's already erased those memories, knowing what the Remnant was after. But they've got some other information they'd be happy to share. The Remnant looks down to see Alinea has absorbed all of the essence from the Blind Wanderer's Settler info cache, and when she stabs that energy back into the Remnant with her harpoon, it creates a powerful explosion that sends her shooting off into the air and over the side of the platform. She falls and falls, only safe from the impact of the blast and from hitting the water by barriers that activate, thanks to the touch power she accidentally absorbed earlier. But once she's in the water, the barriers are spent, and the final vision from Koa comes to pass with Alinea drowning in the icy water. Hallister speaks to Lorena and asks if she wants to end her anguish, and the girl agrees. She tells Danvers she loves him, tells Finnegan she's setting them free, and runs towards the blown-apart cloud of remnant remains. As Finnegan reaches down for the Avtimag bomb, it disappears from his hip and reappears in Lorena's hand, and she pulls the pin, enveloping herself and the remnant in blue magic-destroying light. With her final act, she opens a doorway to Verloff's banishment realm, and pulls the remnant through. The power to move between realms was always hers, not just a byproduct of the orb, likely the reason Verloff chose her to be its vessel, and in the end, the source of its demise. Distraught, Danvers runs and jumps off the side of the platform, desperate to save at least one life if he couldn't save Lorena's. He pulls Alinea's limp body from the water and drags her to the shore, where he breathes life back into her. She's astonished that it was Danvers who saved her. He's happy to have finally been of use, though he's devastated by the loss of his granddaughter. The surface of the platform starts to break apart and water begins to pour down the column. Jarto, the Magi, and the Touched create ice shelves and pull the survivors out of the water, and the capital airship rises up over the edge of the platform. Dreskel is inside, having never run towards the column with the rest of those dum-dums. From up high, Alinea can see three levels, all broken but still alive. The remnant is gone, and the potential to turn the future into what they saw in their visions is now up to them. The epilogue for the story is a series of three vignettes that takes place 20 years after the shift. It opens with Alinea, who's living in a lofted village high up in the branches of a reinvigorated boko tree. She's created a sort of utopia there, thanks in part to the tree growing and evolving to support lifeforms living within its canopy, and even harnessing defensive capabilities to protect itself against future harm. 
The blind wanderer comes to visit Alinea, and he's an old man now. She is still ageless, her skin pale crimson, though the liptus has died and fallen off. He wants to know why she wasn't at the meeting for the New World Assembly, a group tasked with rebuilding the world, but she's jaded on their priorities. We're given a rundown of how things progressed once the shift ended. The waters came down from the platform but immediately started draining into the sinkholes to the underworld. Eventually, the flow was stopped by a giant plug created by Jarto, the Technics, Magi, and Halister's ghost, but in order to keep it operational, Jarto and the Magi were trapped inside. No one is entirely sure what became of Halister, but there are rumors. Keeping the plug operational is still a massive undertaking, but the Kalans are no longer interested in its upkeep, wanting instead to reallocate efforts to recapturing and rebuilding the old capital, and the continued expansion of the new capital. The Assembly is supposed to ensure the fair distribution of money and labor to rebuilding efforts around the world, but the elites in the new capital have made sure their interests are seen to first. A stealthy ship appears carrying General Caldwell in two ISOs. Alinea assumed he was dead. He's pretty sure he'll never die. He's come to warn her that the faction of old council members from the capital pose much more of a threat than just excessive vanity and greed. They're trying to amass stockpiles of weapons left over from the capital mandate, and they tasked Caldwell in his new covert military outfit to find it for them. They consider the Arapa and Technics in the North to be a threat and want dangerous weaponry to be on equal footing, even though it was the North that pulled the world back into a habitable state after the shift. Caldwell is planning something big, and there may be a lot of displaced people because of it. He wants to know if these people can join Alinea in the Boko, and she firmly tells him no. Everyone was given a chance to join her group when they left the mainland for good, and they've worked hard to create something honest and pure in their settlement. She's not interested in being a savior again, but she will protect her people from unnecessary outside threats. The tree adapted to allow her village to thrive. She's sure it will welcome others elsewhere. Finnegan is not living in a utopia, but instead in a sort of hell. His affliction didn't go away when Verloff disappeared. It was truly incurable, and only got worse over time. Most of the Arapa died on the platform. Jarto is stuck inside the plug and the free roamers have been spread too thin. Their attempts to retake the underworld never truly were able to begin in earnest, as they were the ones pressed into solving the world's most dire issues after the shift. Few remain in the underground colony, but they still have the settler technology cache, and the new capital is keen on prying it away from them. The new capital has no interest in the North's vision of creating a safe place for all those who have been persecuted and cast away. They only want to take power they do not have and so they send spies into the northern plateaus to try and steal it. When caught, the spies sent from the capital aren't executed, but rather tossed down into Finnegan's prison pit and told how to reach a door to the underworld for escape. It would seem none of them make it that far before Finnegan's murder clock goes off and they're sacrificed on behalf of the new capital. After breaking the neck of one of these spies, Finnegan gets a call on his telepathy phone and heads up the derelict elevator to the surface for the first time in years. Caldwell is there with his men, and he offers Finnegan a chance to go on one last mission, a chance to make the new capital see things from the North's point of view. Danvers is in a much better place, acting as a communal grandpa for all of those who were transformed into Aquine by the Nemerus after being rescued from the Central Islands. After the shift, the Nemerus fled Vandanala, scattering across the world and leaving the people they had transformed alone in the massive hub. Danvers overcomes the deep grief from Lorena's death to act as their leader, taking them from their underwater tomb to a new settlement on the edge of the mainland, called Little Fire. Here, he teaches the young Aquine how to fish and be self-sufficient. The coastline has changed dramatically since half of the ocean drained away, and a system of caves that were once underwater becomes the foundation for their new village. One day, as he's teaching three young'uns how to mend nets and toss them into the water, 
Danvers finds some unexpected visitors are ashore on Little Fire, Caldwell, his ISOs, and Finnegan. Caldwell is curious how many more people could be housed in the village, and Danvers tells them that there's room for plenty more. The fish return to the shallow waters and are plentiful, and the boko roots are regrowing and giving fruit and nuts. The cave system stretches down the shore as far as the eye can see. Danvers lets him know that all are welcome in Little Fire. They just have to contribute and be part of the community. Caldwell is pleased to hear this. There's something about to go down that could displace 10 to 20,000 people. He's happy that Danvers has created a place they might be able to go. Danvers is stunned by this possibility, but he's up to the challenge. Saying Caldwell brings back strong memories of Lorena, but he knows that he's in the place he is now, able to help all these people who need him because of her sacrifice. The Aquine children ask Danvers to tell them the story of the hero of Little Fire, and he happily agrees. Lorena started out young and clumsy, just like all of them, but she had a fire inside of her that would help save the world. The end! We did it! We did it, Jeff. Okay, so let's start with the rolls from chapter 19. I rolled an 18. Someone dies trying. Yep. And you rolled a 7. Protagonist gets overzealous and makes a major mistake. So just to start off, Jeff, out of those two roles, which one of them got you the most excited in terms of progressing the story? It took a long time to figure out what either one of them was going to be. It felt like there were all of these puzzle pieces, and I had to figure out how they fit together. And there were more than one way that they could fit. And so I think figuring out who was going to die trying and make it meaningful was more exciting because I felt like it had the bigger payoff for the story. Because originally, I had thought that I was going to kill the blind wanderer and Alinea was going to take the cash from him after he died and sort of do like a, how dare you murder my best friend here and then use the power from the cash to blow up the remnant. But the more and more I thought about it, Lorena wasn't going to make it out of there. She failed her virtue check a couple chapters ago. She chose to keep the demon inside of her. There was no way that they were getting rid of Verloff without getting rid of her. And if Lorena needed to go, then she needed to go of her own volition trying to save everybody else. So that was the most exciting for me, for sure, to to figure out that that was where that was going to go. So the process to actually get rid of the remnant was pretty interesting. When did you realize that you were actually going to use the remnant's kind of overall goal against it? I think a while ago, I, as soon as we figured out that the remnant like kind of was the big bad, then figuring out how you could stop such a construct, I figured that out around the time of chapter 13, where Alinea is using the Liptus in the Siphon Sphere to incapacitate Feig. I liked the idea of sort of putting that idea there and then having her use it with settler magic to blow up the remnant at the end. I think I, I started toying around with that idea in my head then. At one point, you and I were talking about the remnant could have been a settler that was left there. But what made you make the change to it being a construct as opposed to an actual settler? I just kind of liked the idea of it being this sentient AI sort of left to rot, because that seemed more like what the settlers would do based on the sort of backstory that we gave them that like an actual settler wouldn't stay or it wouldn't just be stuck doing this job forever but they would absolutely create something that was intelligent and then just abandon it there just like they abandon everything else and that would make it sort of bitter and jaded and go crazy so i I liked that better 
honestly, I really did too, because the settlers were such like a mythological race. And I always like it in, in movies and books and games where like you hear about something a lot, but you never really see it. You know, that's kind of a trope in horror movies. Like as soon as you reveal it, the monster, it, it's, it's not as scary. And so that was a cool creation. And I was like, Oh, okay. That makes a lot of sense because they've abandoned everything. So I guess that leads me to my next question. You and I talk a lot about abandonment in this story. <laughs> do, do we have abandonment issues? I know I don't. I have never been abandoned by anyone or anything. So I, I can't say that that's something that's driving my storytelling or my like real fears. How about you? I know. And, and I think that's so odd that like, <laughs> I don't know, like at least 70% of the chapters involve someone leaving somebody or whatnot. I mean, we're both in very nice, stable relationships. We're, we're both happy people. We've got good family lives. So I don't know. There may be a little bit of a, a investigation into that in the future. But I have to, again, compliment you, Jeff, because you have created a cool little group of monsters to inject into this chapter. Was it difficult for you to pull together the Emirate Eight? Because in the past, you know, we've only kind of described a few of them, but you had to actually describe every single one of them. Yeah. I mean, actually, it was easier to come up with them than it was to not just make that section go on way longer than it could. Because it was already such a long chapter that like, it felt like a real tightrope act. Like, okay, you're gonna invent this oozing centaur that staring into it pulls you into the abyss and it gets one paragraph. (laughs) Like, that was harder than coming up with the Black Rider in general. I was sort of sourcing ideas for the monsters too. I was asking like my little niece and nephew when I was home for Christmas for help. They didn't. Uh, but I asked you for help, too. And you came up with like, with Slint, with the idea for the shape-shifting rat. So, you know, I was, I was crowdsourcing. Do you think looking back, the Amirid 8 became a bigger part of the story than we even expected? I mean, I definitely wasn't expecting to have to come up with all eight and have all eight be in the story. That was never the plan. Mm -hmm. But I feel like it sort of became an inevitability at the end. But I'm glad that we had this sort of out with the incantation in Halaster that like they didn't have to beat these things that were unbeatable by the Nemerus and the Settlers. They just had to stick them back in their orb, which was a tall enough order, but like not out of the realm of possibility. So I was glad that we sort of had that in our pocket so that we could introduce them and not have it feel like totally unreasonable that they showed up and then they got vanquished. So one of the really, I think, excellent scenes in this story or this chapter, excuse me, is the scene where everybody is essentially running towards the column, but they're actually being drawn towards a column. So why did you make that differentiation? Why did you have them kind of be magnetized towards the column as opposed to go of their own, essentially, free will? Because it seemed like not everybody would. Mm -hmm. It was one of those where, like, they had to show up at that little island of their own free will. But then as soon as they start moving towards the middle, it's game over. They're just, they're in a tractor beam. And that seemed like the easiest way to, to move that scene along, to be honest. Because this was a chapter that easily could have been split into four chapters with a ton of explanation for all of the stuff that happens. But we had set sort of a, you know, limit for how long we wanted the book to be. And it also was totally capable of being one cool, really long chapter. And that was, you know, what I thought it needed to be. And so, yeah, seeing like that really could have, you know, you could have had people arguing about whether or not 
they're going to move towards the column and how they're going to get up. But just getting sucked up into the action seemed like the best way to move it along. Yeah. Well, and it, and it created this really cool sense of chaos and panic once everyone realized that it's just not like Kalans and Technics and, and Magi up there. There's there's monsters up there as well. And those monsters are, are relatively hungry for death. So no, it was a really, really cool scene. I really, really liked that. And it kicked it off quite well. But your boy got done in a little bit there. Halister got exploded into nothingness by flames. How did you feel about that? I felt like there were only two characters that were going to get overzealous and make a major mistake. And that was Halister or Finnegan. And it made more sense since Halister was the one with the big power. He was like really the only ally capable of doing anything for him to get overzealous and make the mistake. And then for it to come at a time where once he was sort of incapacitated, that there was no chance of finishing off the last bad guy without him, unless Lorena made her sacrifice. So, you know, it was the way that the puzzle pieces fit together. And I was really happy that they did fit together the way that they did, because I thought it was really satisfying. Yeah, no, it really was. I mean, it it was a really good conclusion to the main arc. And I'm glad that Danvers made it out in the end. Did you have any hint of a possibility of him dying, though? Was there ever a moment in the chapter you thought this is his time to go? No, Danvers was never on the table to die. (laughs) Because that would be cruel. I mean, Danvers had been pulled along on this whole story with the promise that he was going to be useful at some point. Yeah. And if the story didn't end with Danvers being useful in some way, then what was the point? Yeah. Like, that's too big of a screw you to the listener and to Danvers. So, like, on the short list of things that had to happen in that chapter, Danvers being useful was on that list for sure, not Danvers dying. Yeah. That would be really cruel now that I think about it, because in my mind, I always expected that would be the the moment that Lorena really turns the corner. But yeah, we also really like Danvers, though, you know, and especially since his voice is somewhat changed as a result of some transformations <laughs> happening throughout. I guess the final one is you set the scene for this world at the very end. You know, it, it doesn't look like it used to. It, it essentially almost has three different levels to it. Did you think it was important to show that despite the good guys, quote unquote, winning, the world was still changed forever because there was no Disney moment here? Yeah, I think that we knew all along that this was going to have a bittersweet ending. If you create an apocalypse situation, even if the big bad is dispatched, you still have to deal with everything being messed up from the apocalypse. But, you know, the best you can do is offer hope of a of a brighter future which is what we do and which is what you got to tackle in the epilogue yes (laughs) or i did my best let's say (laughs) no you did a great job i really like the epilogue so the roles for that i rolled a number seven a lesson is not learned which man that is absolutely the number one role that I wanted to roll for that epilogue, and I nailed it, and I was pumping my fist in the air. Yeah, I appreciated that you got that. Yeah, that was good. You rolled a 19, virtue of protagonist is tested by an ally, and that was a lot harder of a role to sort of work into a finale of a story, but I liked the way that you did it. Yeah, that one had me sweating a little bit, to be quite honest with you. I was so, so excited for the lesson is not learned role. And it really ended up impacting how we ended this story. 
the thread of people's greed and nearsightedness leading to the problems that made the world fall apart was already a steady theme throughout the book, but it was really the star of the show in the epilogue. And it opened some really great possibilities for how our characters would deal with the same old problems resurfacing 20 years down the line. Were you excited that this role brought you down that path? Yeah, I was because, you know, one of the things we hadn't been able to deal with directly was the fact that the world was in the state it was not just because of the remnant, but because of how people contributed to the after effects of the remnants, you know, kind of messing around. And I really think that in the end, the real villain was kind of the Kallen leadership in the capital. And it wasn't the capital military, you know, it was these people sitting up in their ivory towers, just kind of like messing with everyone's lives and not really caring about it. And and you and I both kind of played with that idea a little bit, but it began to build throughout the whole story. And so I wouldn't have been satisfied if we didn't deal with them in the end. And again, we didn't really have an opportunity to because I mean, the shift and the remnant were like, in your face, deal with this now. So having that opportunity was really great, especially in you know today's political and economic climate, it's just always nice to kind of like take a shot at the people that are disconnected. So the virtue of a protagonist being tested by an ally is a much sneakier plot point. It's not super overt in your story, and it can be argued that it happens several times. Yeah. How did you see this role fitting in your chapter? So this role in my mind was first going to be taken care of by Finnegan because um, Finnegan to me was going to have, I guess, the worst ending of everybody else just because of what happened to him. And the reality of him being in the North and the North no longer having their ability to see their mission out would have left him kind of stuck with his affliction and kind of getting worse over time. So that's where I began it. But I also wanted every character to have this kind of like, again, if this was D&D, let's call it a virtue check. I don't know if that's a real thing in D&D, but so I thought every one of the three, you know, kind of focal point characters would have this as well and have it to different degrees. So Elenia had kind of a neutral approach to it. I mean, she did good. You know, she kind of led people away to the Boko tree so they could exist and they have a good life. But she was also very protective of her people. You know, she was she was isolationist to a degree. Um, which is kind of, a, I think, neutral because in the, at the end of the day, you know, it's like if someone comes to your house in the middle of the night, you know, letting them in may make you, you know, a, a morally superior person, but you may, you know, cause danger to your family. Leaving them out may be, and again, morally not so nice because it's cold. However, you've protected your family. And I wanted her to have that kind of theme running through her little part of the chapter because she started out isolated and not by choice. So I wanted to keep playing with that. And then Danvers, you know, Danvers was the the feel-good chapter, and I wanted him to kind of continue to exude this hopefulness that no matter who or what came to him, if, if they had a problem, they needed help, he would be able to contend with it. And also, that concept of usefulness is always kind of missed in in stories like this where, you know, you need the warrior character or you need the really smart, sneaky person but at the end of the day, those people need someone to kind of support them and to kind of build them back up after something really intense has happened. And to me, that's what Danvers has kind of been. You know, in the very beginning of the story, he kind of built Morwell up when Morwell was in kind of a tough place. And he was a good grandpa to Lorena. And he added that humanity to a dawn, you know, when she showed up. So he was useful, but just not in the contemporary sense. And now now he has that and he's able to live that off. And, and when Caldwell questioned him on his ability to support more people, he had the answer quite quickly. You know, at first I had them kind of going back and forth, but I thought that doesn't make sense in the context of who Danvers is as a character. 
I absolutely love what you did at the end with Danvers because like we talked about earlier, we really wanted Danvers to be useful. And in the end of the story, Danvers is arguably the most useful because he volunteered for this transformation to happen. And then he can be the one who looks after all of these people who had it happen to them sort of by nefarious circumstances. And he can be their de facto leader. So I, I really thought that that was a satisfying ending for Danvers. I also really, really liked that we were true to Finnegan's original Fate Index role, that his affliction is incurable. I know that you were protective of your boy and didn't want me to kill him in my chapter, but I'm glad that you didn't give him a happy ending per se. Yeah. That said, it's implied that he gets to be used for some real satisfying capital elite murder facing in the end. So is that a happy ending after all? So with Finnegan, it is a bit bittersweet. There is usefulness for him still in the end. I don't exactly go into detail what's going to happen. I'm going to kind of leave that up to the reader because I kind of think that's good that people have that choice. But, you know, you could kind of steer him in whatever direction you want. Maybe he just gets sucked back down beneath the earth accidentally and he lives a hellscape for the rest of his life. Maybe he meets someone he loves in the capital. Who knows? But I'll leave that up to everybody else. But yeah, no, I mean, he he wasn't going to get out of this in any sort of good shape. He had a tough story, and and we needed to make sure that not everything was Disney at the end. So unfortunately, my favorite character got got a lot. I mean, it's yeah, we did a lot of bad stuff to that guy. He's going to go do some murder facing to some capital elites, I mean, right? I mean, that's that's the that's the implication. Yeah, I mean, I, I I mean, we'll feel good with the kind of stuff that he does, especially if you're somebody who's kind of living under the weight of our current situation with you know our our Elon Musk's and our Jeff Bezos. He's he's kind of your your hero, your everyman that kind of gets back up into that. <laughs> we really turned this thing into some leftist propaganda at the end, didn't we? <laughs> well. Not intentionally, but you know, I mean, that we've talked about this before. Like, this book has so many themes that are built off of how we were feeling at any given time, um, specifically because we, we started it, you know, at the height, I would say, of the pandemic. So, yeah, I mean, that stuff comes out quite quickly. But, you know, I don't know, like, back in the 1700s, people wouldn't see it as leftist propaganda. They'd be like, yeah, this is what needs to happen right now. You know? Yeah, so totally. I, I don't know. I always do that with my stories is... is I, I, yeah, maybe I need to be careful. In the, in the future, like kids are going to bring our book to school and everyone's going to be like, ah, oh, communist. You know, it'll be the new communist manifesto or this is the leftist um, <laughs> Atlas Shrugged, let's say. <laughs> I do not feel bad that there is lots of harping on doing what's best for the common good and how those who focus on the good of the few are the yeah. true enemy. That is that is a universal theme as far as I'm concerned. That is not leftist. No, unless you live in Indiana. <laughs> At the end of this book, we gave it a title. We called it The Shift. But I kind of wish we would have said, and thus ends the first book in the Cool Story Guys saga, Billionaires Shouldn't Exist. <laughs> Actually, yeah. I mean, we could we could have a little kind of a new release in the future where we completely change the, the, the story to kind of fit into like the political <laughs> conversation. So, <laughs> How do you feel about the name we chose? I think it's actually the simplest name that invokes the most meaning because, you know, the shift itself is the main issue that's happening in the story and causing all these problems for all of these characters. But we also illustrate a lot of shifts of each character within the story. You know, this this idea of of Alinea going from isolationist to kind of being a leader, you know, for people. Danvers going from being an alcoholic to being kind of everyone's grandpa. I mean, we dealt with shift in kind of an interesting way, and I and I like that that title has a double meaning. 
And honestly, I could have sat for 20 years to try to think of the proper title to this and still wouldn't come up with it. And I think sometimes the simplest is the best. Yeah, I pulled the trigger on that one. I had a list of all of the words that should or could be in the title, like, you know, barriers and columns and platforms and visions and all of these things. And the shift was the one that just sort of encompassed everything that was happening in the story. And there are lots of other books called The Shift, and I don't care. Yeah, that's that's just what this book is called. I mean, it's called Cool Story Guys, The Shift. Uh, so it's different. Yeah. I mean, I was really stuck on uh, missing Waterworld as the story because we started off this <laughs> project talking about Waterworld way too much, I think, if you think about it. But, you know, that just doesn't ring the same. And I, and I think we probably would definitely get sued for that. Yeah, I wanted to call it a field guide for gendering fictitious monsters. <laughs> Because that was the name that seemed the most fitting when I was writing about the Amir date. Like, this one is a she, and this one's a boy. Ooh, the oozing centaur is an it, but the sentient construct is a they. Like, getting all of that straight was the hardest part of writing this entire book. <laughs> I think we did it justice, though. We represented everybody, I think. So, yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, that was a lot tougher than I would have thought. I also had another one that I was strongly considering. Because this book is really about building a new world on top of another world, right? Yeah. And the world everyone is currently living on is being held up by columns above an old dead world, and the remnant builds a new level above them. So if they're going to move forward with these new levels, they have to know about the world that theirs is built upon, and there's no way that we're going to end this story at this point. So I think we should call it the Foundation Trilogy. Oh, yeah. It's just such a good name. I can't believe no one's ever used it before. Yeah, actually, that's really good. But but that kind of begs a question for me, Jeff. If we were going to write another book in this series, would it be a prequel or would it be a sequel? Ethan, have you never heard of the Foundation Trilogy? <laughs> no. <laughs> okay, well then, that one landed with a big thud, but I love it. I love it so much. <laughs> I don't know how to read. I think I do, but... <laughs> Okay, we're not telling this story anymore, right? The next book's going to be a different story. Yeah, yeah. I'm so confused by this book's history, and I've, I, by the end of it, I think I need to like create something new. Yeah, I did leave a door open, though. I don't know if you noticed the door I left open with Lorena. Um, do you want me to point it out? Well, I almost had her come back in my chapter. <laughs> <laughs> I would have struck it down. <laughs> I almost had her wandering across the new ocean, and just basically everything's okay you know <laughs> right the door that i left open is that you know the remnant its whole purpose is trying to escape this banishment realm with somebody who can move between the realms yeah it escaped the banishment realm with someone who could move between the realms yeah so you know dun 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 did you intend that or did well, that was just happenstance it fit together with everything else that was a happy accident but i was really happy that it worked yeah yeah so if i would have had her just show up and like bring in a big old pot of fish stew to serve all the new little orphans they've collected at Little Fire. You wouldn't have liked that ending? Oh, I would have just deleted it. I would have gone, uh-uh. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we joked much earlier in this podcast about whether we would want this story to be a TV show or a movie. On a similar note, now that it's all done, let's play a fun game of make-believe. Let's talk about which famous actors we would want to play the main characters. Ooh. Now, to be clear... These are not the people we had in mind when we created the characters or wrote the story. They're just the established actors who we think would play the part well. 
I told my wife that we were doing this and she was like, I hate it. I don't want this actor to replace the vision I have in my head of the character. And so that's not our intention here. It's just a fun game because I like putting real actors in fake movies. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, wow. Okay. A lot of responsibility here, but we'll do our best. Yeah. Although the other thing that like totally invalidates that for Kat is that she has this thing I call fame blindness where she can't remember any famous person's name. So upon telling her all of the people I imagined for the parts, she had to Google all of them because unless (laughs) she put it upon herself, she wasn't going to have that image pop in her mind and overwrite what her memory had come up with. (laughs) Well, good. I hope everybody has that. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So Ethan, who, who would you have star as our main protagonist, Alinea? Okay. So, you know, in the very beginning, Angela Bassett was who I kind of saw as the Crimson Woman slash Alinea, but I made a change after trying to catch up with The Walking Dead, and I'm actually going to go with Denia Greer, oh, yeah. who plays Michonne on The Walking Dead and is also in The Black Panther as well, just because the Crimson Woman slash Alinea kind of became a more physical character as the story progressed. And I just kept seeing Michonne as opposed to Aunt Angela Bassett. So definitely that's where I'm going. Did you have one for that as well? I did. I chose Emmy and Oscar winning actress and all around super talent, Viola Davis. Oh, she's the right age. Yeah, she's got that sharp acerbic temperament. And she's already shown a willingness to play along with silly fiction movies by agreeing to be in the DC Suicide Squad films. So, I mean, if we could land her, then that, you know, you got a true talent in her. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Michonne is a great choice as well. Yeah. Okay, who do you got for Danvers? Boy, I mean, and I'm I'm picking fairly famous people on this, everybody. So don't, I didn't dig too deep. Jeff Bridges. <laughs> okay. And Jeff Bridges, because I watched a movie called, oh my God, maybe the IPD. It's basically Men in Black, but for like ghosts and stuff. It was really stupid. And he played this cowboy character and had this voice. And I was like, Oh my god. I didn't finish the movie, by the way, everybody. Don't worry. I, I, I do have taste. But he, he had this voice, and I was like, if you shift the octave a little bit, he could sound exactly like Danvers, and he's become kind of an old guy, and he's got a nice long beard, and yeah, I, I think Jeff, Dan- uh, Jeff Bridges, excuse me, would be perfect. What about you? Mine's a bit outside the box. I chose Taika Waititi. Oh! I think we'd get to have some fun with makeup or CGI aging on this one. Because he'd need to look older than he really is in the beginning. But then once he loses 20 years in Hallister's shell, he'd be about the right age of what he is now. And I feel like he has the right balance of like comedic temperament to play Danvers. Yeah. But he can also do serious. And I would just love to hear him do a Kiwi version of the sourdough <laughs> voice. Do, do you think it would be too off-putting to have Jeff Bridges play old Danvers and in your choice play you know, young fish <laughs> I think that those sort of bold casting decisions are what's going to set us apart from the rest of the field. (laughs) Okay, I'm going to follow that up with my choice for Lorena because they're a package deal. Okay. I would let Taika Waititi cast a Maori teenager. I want to go total unknown for Lorena. And this story is about islanders, so there needs to be Polynesian representation. In, In Taika Waititi's movie Hunt for the Wilder People, he found the perfect angsty child, yeah. this kid, Julian Dennison, who was a total unknown and just absolutely was amazing in that movie. And he did such a good job that he then went on to play the villain in Deadpool 2, an angsty teenager with destructive superpowers. Yeah. So I would put Taika Waititi in charge of finding a great unknown actress to play Lorena. He did it once. He could do it again. Yeah, that's actually, I agree with you 100%. 
Mine isn't good at all because I don't know young actresses. Oh, it was tough. It was tough. I mean, I looked up actresses under 20, and the one that I found was just a girl that has a very icy stare, and that's what I went with, Uh, a girl named Raffi Cassidy, who was in Snow White and the Huntsman and Mr. Selfridge. I mean, just had that look, but actually, I'm going to go into yours. So I'm just going to take mine and say, this is a mention, but Jeff is right here. Okay. Yeah, sure. (laughs) Tyke is in charge of that one. Who do you got for Finnegan? Finnegan has always been this actor, and it's Timothy Oliphant. Okay. Okay. And it is Timothy Oliphant as seen in his interviews with Conan O'Brien, because he just has this charisma and this charm and confidence, but he's also a bit odd. You know, there's kind of this weirdness to him, and he's just been in The Mandalorian as well. And the character he played there kind of fit quite well with who I thought Finnegan would be. Yeah, I mean, I and I'm sorry to anybody that I've disrupted your view on who Finnegan was because I always I don't know why, but it was like, oh, this is Timothy Oliphant. <laughs> See, we're gonna we're gonna fight hard on this one because I think my Finnegan is my top choice as well for casting. Yeah, I choose one of the best rogues in the fantasy sci-fi business today, Oscar Isaac. Oh, he's Poe Dameron in Star Wars. He's Duke Atreides in Dune. He's about to be Moon Knight in the MCU. He's got that mischievous smile, that perfect hair. It's already salt and pepper. Yeah. I mean, give that man some cybernetic eyes, and I think we got the perfect Finnegan. Oh, okay. You may be two for two for two on this one, Jeff. Um, yeah, that's actually a pretty perfect casting pick. Um, sorry, Timothy. Yeah, I. I mean, Oliphant's good too. Yeah, but but uh, yeah. Now that you mentioned Oscar Isaac, you know, I think there's that. Oh, that confidence he exudes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, okay, let me. I'm going to think about this, and in two months, I will write a comment on this podcast deciding who I actually <laughs> Perfect. All right, next up is The Blind Wanderer. Who you got? Okay, so I'm going with Ron Cephas Jones, who played Marshall's father on This Is Us. Okay. He is, uh, you would recognize him if you saw him. I mean, he's he's becoming more and more popular as the days go by. I always saw the blind wanderers having this kind of coolness, kind of chill, kind of like, you know, fun uncle type like support system, you know, and and and, and this guy plays it amazingly to the to the degree that his, you know, moments in The Last of Us caused me a lot of sadness because I didn't expect to like him so much. So that's definitely who I'm going with. I think he's a good choice. The guy that I chose actually doesn't look that dissimilar. I chose two-time Oscar winner for Moonlight and Green Book, Mahershala Ali. Oh, yes. Where, similar to Viola Davis, he's also already in the comic entertainment business. He was great as the villain in Luke Cage. Yeah. So he might be willing to play along with our fantasy bullshit. Yeah. No, I like that. He's got that effortless cool, and I could just imagine him, you know, doing the finger thing, rubbing his fingers together. Yeah. He doesn't need visible eyes to be enigmatic. Yeah, I dig that pick as well. And, and and those two guys would do really good as as the younger and older blind wanderer as well, if need mm-hmm. be. But oh, yeah, that's pretty perfect casting, Jeff. Why are we not doing this, you know, as, as a career? Uh, we should be paid for this, I think. This is going to be the springboard, obviously. <laughs> All right, next up is Hallister. Who do you got for Hallister? Okay, Hallister is a pretty tough one. Um, obviously, baby Hallister, any nameless baby. It doesn't matter. Find us a baby, we'll do it. <laughs> Um, I, I saw Hallister as being Taron Egerton, you know, he played in the Kingsman and he played Elton John as well. And I just always thought, you know, 
Halister had that kind of like playful youth once he got into that, even though there was this kind of like strong kind of older person behind that. And I, and I think that would definitely be a, a good choice. But again, it's really tough to find young actors. I just don't know anybody anymore. I just like old moldy actors. Sure. No, I think Taryn Egerton is a great choice for young Halister. But so much of Halister to me is about the voice. Yeah. And I already said that my inspiration to do my voice for Halister was Matt Berry. So we might as well get the thing for the TV series or movie, right? Just get Matt Berry to do the voice. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, actually, that's I, that's really good as well. I like that. And for those who don't know Matt Berry, he's in What We Do in the Shadows. He was in the IT crowd, Toast of London. He's got one of the most amazing, dry, hilarious British accents. And I love the idea of his voice coming out of a floating red infant. And I really love the idea of doing a sort of de-aged, freakly buff CGI version of the real Matt Berry to play him as a grown-up in his touched body. <laughs> but now, I also really like the idea of Matt Berry's voice coming out of Taron Edgerton. <laughs> I think that that is actually the perfect combo. <laughs> that would be an, uh, an interesting explanation meeting, I think. <laughs> okay, Adon, who you got? This one would be full CGI. Yeah, well... Maybe. Unless we do Frank Oz puppet style. We could do Frank Oz puppet style. Yeah, I mean, maybe, but I saw Gwendolyn Christie mm. in full prosthetics. Yeah. Because Adon, to me, has this aura about her and this kind of like physical presence that's really quite, you know, intimidating and, and powerful. And I think Gwendolyn Christie is the only person I could think of that could kind of exude that quite effortlessly. I think about the Hellboy series and the that the fish creature and that whose name i can't think of right now and and i kind of want something along those lines let's say so i i I honestly wouldn't go full cg on this sure i like gwendolyn christie for those of you who don't know that name it's brand of tarth from game of thrones yes she would be an excellent choice my choice which you could go either way with the makeup or the cgi is sigourney weaver oh i feel like she can do cold commanding voice better than anyone yeah and also, it's freaking Sigourney Weaver, so put her in my movie doing anything. Yeah, that's a real man. That's a really good one, Jeff. I really thought I had a trump on this one, but no, you. That's really good. I'll, I'll... I think those are both great choices. Yeah. Oh boy. Wow. I mean, if if Gwendolyn wants to play Adon, then Sigourney can play Morwell. For all I care, just put her in the movie. <laughs> that's pretty perfect casting. Did you have anyone for Morwell? You know, honestly, I didn't because I went to Caldwell. I wasn't, I mean, I think the, uh, I think Morwell could be the actor who plays The Undertaker from the, what is it, WWE or WWE now? Yeah, yeah. Um, no, I didn't. I'm kind of ashamed, to be quite honest with you. I, I, I cast Josh Brolin as, uh, Caldwell and, and that was kind of it. I was like, oh, I've done all my casting for the day. Oh, yeah, that's great. Yeah, for Morwell, actually, I asked my wife who she thought. And she said Danny Trejo, and I just thought that was so awesome, and I love the idea of Danny Trejo playing more well. Yes, honestly, that's it. I, I don't even need to investigate any time into thinking about that. That's actually the perfect fit. That's the absolute perfect fit. Yeah, the only other one that I had sort of as a, a, on the wish list was Ron Perlman as the voice of Jarto. Oh. <laughs> I mean, it just seems to fit. That is absolutely perfect though now that you mentioned ron perlman i mean ron perlman could have also easily been more well yeah how many characters do you think ron perlman could play in this movie without people noticing or kind of being taken out of the fantasy i, I would put him as a shaman i would put him as jarto i would put him as Morwell. i think the thing about ron perlman though is that like he's one of those voices 
that I immediately know it's Ron Perlman, even if he's trying not to sound like Ron Perlman. So for me, the answer would be one. I would know every single time that he popped up being a different character. (laughs) That's awesome. Okay, so now that we're all done, is there anything you wish you could get a do-over on? Anything that bugs you from an earlier chapter that you wish you wouldn't have added or wish you would have? That's a really good one. I think to some degree, we glossed over the lives of people that didn't exist in and around the capital. Okay, so we started out with Koa, and then everything got kind of brought to the center of the world, which kind of made sense from the perspective of, you know, what was actually happening in the world. But I would have enjoyed spending a little bit more time in the Outer Rings, but especially in the string of islands between the Central Isles and the Outer Rings, because I feel those characters and the people living there probably struggled more than anybody, but you didn't really hear much from them, which is which is interestingly enough for us writing a book that's kind of like poking at the issues with elitism and forgetting about everybody else in the world. We sort of forgot about everybody else in the world to some degree, so I would have liked to explore that a little bit more. I think you set the stage for some really interesting islands and whatnot at the very beginning. Yeah, I mean, we sort of were on a pace of just saying like, okay, this is an Alinea chapter, this is a Lorena chapter, this is a Danvers chapter. I agree. It would have been nice to say, this is a chapter that's just about your common man who is struggling on an island. Yeah, I think that would have been a cool change of pace for sure. Yeah, But I think that also the roles didn't show up for that to happen. No. I think that maybe the right role would have led us down that path and it just didn't it didn't show up. The roles really pushed the story. I mean, I think if people look at this and they say, oh, well, you guys, yeah, you rolled the dice, but then you kind of played with that very lightly. No, we we 100% were driven by what we got from those roles. And I mean, that is why it was kind of a breakneck speed throughout the whole story, even though it was 20 chapters long, like there was no time to dawdle, let's say. What about you? Well, first off, I want to say that it's hard to overestimate how much those roles were responsible for how this book ended, Yeah, especially those last four. Like, we did not exactly know where it was going to go, and the Fate Index really pushed the story into a direction. And I'm really happy that we got the roles that we did, because I think the direction makes sense. But as far as like what I wish I could get a do-over on, I wish I could just get rid of the Fate Index altogether. <laughs> I mean, there was so much dumb shit in this book that I was forced to add in because of that thing. Like, my ideas are way better. This book was supposed to be about the Crimson Woman learning to find love in a world with no water, and we ended up cutting her arm off and putting a spider there that she used to blow up a vindictive alien supercomputer. (laughs) Like, what even is this story, Ethan? I was going to write the fantasy version of how Stella got her groove back. I regret everything. Um... Yeah, no, I apologize that the Fate Index got in your way, Jeff. I There's nothing this world wants than having a middle-aged white man try to write Stella got her group back. But yeah, I mean, I have those thoughts as well, because, you know, I've read your book, and it's really, really good. And I just often wonder, and, and that maybe this is a conversation for the future, is if you could take this book and go back and edit it, I mean, it's, I think it's a fun book. Okay, there's a lot of plot holes and that sort of thing, and it, and it, it, it can be kind of difficult to follow at times just because of how the dice rolls kind of ended up. But I would like to see what you could do if you just like went at it, you know, and just use some basic themes and, and got to the basic, you know, very basic end. But I don't know, I think you could have some fun with it. But then I also did like to be a little bit restricted by the roles because 
I have a lot of big ideas as well, but they get out of control really quickly. And I definitely need someone to like harness those a little bit. So I, I think I benefited from the fade index, but that's just because I haven't been writing as much as I should be. Sure. I mean, all joking aside, I loved the fate index. I loved the way that it shaped this story. I loved the pressure that it put to make things go a different way because this story turned out in a way that I could have never expected. And I think it's really good and I'm really proud of it. And honestly, given the option to like go back and edit things, like I don't want to. Yeah. It is what it is. It's this finished document that followed a very specific set of rules and we were true to them. And I think that honestly, that's more interesting than having, you know, carte blanche to do whatever you want. Yeah. So I think it turned out to be something unique and fun. And I'm glad we did it, bud. It was a good time. We've grown as human beings. And I can now say that I've finished a book, which is something I haven't been able to say up to this point. Yeah. You've got two. So that's awesome. But hey, we're going to do it again, right? New season, new story. We don't have to keep telling this dumb one anymore. New season, new story. Going to take a little bit of a a breather. Yeah, it's time for a break. (laughs) It's a lot to do 40 podcasts, 20 chapters of a book, and all the work in between, especially what Jeff has done with composing all the music and all of this. So yeah, we're going to take a breather, get into 2022, feel stable, feel comfortable, and, and see what happens. And yeah, stay tuned. Thank you to everyone who stuck through this fun little experiment to the very end. We love and appreciate you all. See you next time. Bye-bye.